Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness. Here's the high stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Stefan Michael. And she gives me a napkin and says, oh, my God, you're bleeding. And I say, yeah, bitch, you stabbed me. <laughs> now, here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is vijay Iyer behind me now and we are calling this week's episode daunting some pretty daunting stories this week from all over these united states uh, some of the tour shows we've done recently i have got to let you know that we are getting very very near our big goal remember we're trying to get up to five thousand dollars per month on patreon and or uh one thousand patreon patrons right now i'm looking at it right now we are at 949 patrons that's awesome and we're at four thousand seven hundred and nineteen dollars a month that come to us from those patrons so we're trying to get it up to a thousand patrons and five thousand dollars a month Uh, people are often very surprised to hear that we need help but we really 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 do the advertising and the money we make from the shows and you know certainly we haven't made as much from the book as we were hoping like It takes a lot. There are over 20 people working on this show. We're a very indie thing. We started from nothing. There's just a lot of moving parts. And so, yes, we do desperately rely on help from our fans to keep all of this growing. You know, we want to do even more. So, yes, please become a patron of ours before November 15th. And let's break that threshold. Also, Listen, there is so much that you get when you become a patron. You can become a patron for $1 a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever. 
If you become a patron for at least $5 a month, you have access to every bit of content we have ever created. All the bonus stories, all the remastered episodes from the first two years, all the episodes that don't show up on iTunes. There's just a fuck ton (laughs) of content that is available if you do become a patron for at least $5 a month. Okay, that is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash risk. Okay, now theme of this week's episode, as I said, is daunting. And in a little bit, we're going to hear a story that was recorded at our Washington, D.C. show when we were last there by Stefan Michael. But before that, we're going to hear a story that was shared at our show in Portland the last time we were there. This is a story by Aaron Popelka, who you can find at popelicopter.com. Here she is now with a story we call What is he to you? So when I was in high school in Wisconsin, my family hosted a Japanese exchange student. And Shinobu was just majestic. She was six feet tall with big, broad shoulders and a big, broad face. And she had this loud laugh and this big smile. And she was so confident and she was so strong and she was so funny and she was so weird and she was like the perfect friend for me. And she did not speak a lot of English, Um, but I was learning Japanese, so what we would do is we would take whatever words we knew and we would combine them into this kind of broken secret language and we built this closeness out of that. And we would create these adventures for each other. Uh, Like one time we were on a field trip to a science museum and we snuck away from the group and we were crouched under this T-Rex model and we were making dinosaur noises as people walked by. (laughs) And we just had all of these wonderful, weird adventures together. And when she had to go back to Japan, we had this big, stupid scene at the airport where like, we were both crying and she was walking into the plane and you could be there then because it was uh, the late 90s. Uh, she was waving with both hands and crying and I was yelling I'm gonna go to Japan and I'm gonna see you there and the thing is is I like I actually followed through I went when I started university I majored in Japanese and I study abroad in Tokyo and when I got there as soon as I could I took the train to go meet her she was living about an hour outside of Tokyo and when I saw her again we could not stop talking because In the meantime, I had learned uh, enough Japanese that we could have a normal conversation and we weren't relying on this kind of like broken word Japanese and English. And for the first time, we could say whatever we wanted to say to each other and we just couldn't stop. And we were walking around for just hours talking and it was like this enhanced version of what we had in high school. And it was so important to me because I was new to Japan and I didn't know anyone. And every day was all of these new experiences. And it was so nice to have something not just familiar, but almost more familiar because now we could finally talk to each other like adults. And after a while, she 
starts getting notifications on her phone and she starts looking down a lot and she's looking a little concerned and she looks at me and she says, my boyfriend, uh, he wants to meet you, but we have to leave right now. Is that okay? And she kind of scrunches her face up like into an apology. And I think it's really weird because we've been talking for hours and she never mentioned a boyfriend, but I, I didn't, I didn't think much of it. And I said, yeah, it's, I'll, I'll meet him. I'll meet him. Let's go. And she grabs me, and we run down this alley to the main street. And out of nowhere, this expensive-looking red sports car comes swerving around the corner and drives up onto the sidewalk in front of us. And I jump back, and Shinobu just is completely unfazed. And she's like, that's him. And we get into the back seat of the car, and this guy turns around, and he looks at me. And he's got to be like 40 years old. And he's wearing this black tracksuit, and his head is completely bald, shaven. And he looks at me, he's like, hey, you, you speak Japanese? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, good. And then he just takes off, and he's zooming, and we're weaving back and forth in between traffic, and he's honking the horn at everybody, and he's revving the engine at every red light. And I'm looking at Shinobu like, is what is happening? Is this okay? And she doesn't seem to think it's weird. She's just smiling and um, it looks like she's kind of having fun. And we pull up into this restaurant and it's a family style restaurant. It's really big, really brightly lit and the tables are full of people and families. And we, when we walk in, there's this man at a table in the middle of the restaurant and he stands up and he's younger. He's about the same age as me and Shinobu, about 20. And I look at him, and I look at Shinobu's boyfriend, and they're wearing the same tracksuit. And this guy, this younger guy, his head is also completely shaven. And I'm like, what is happening? But Shinobu doesn't seem to think it's weird. It looks like she's maybe seen him before. And we all sit down, the two bald men in tracksuits on one side, <laughs> me and my tall friend Shinobu on the other side, and everyone else in the restaurant looks deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And the wait staff just seems to be on edge, and the conversation is so weird. It's mostly Shinobu's boyfriend talking about cars and motorcycles, and no one else really says anything. But I'm looking over at Shinobu, and she's just eating and smiling, and she just looks relaxed and at ease, like nothing is wrong and nothing is weird. And I think maybe this is just what it's like to be an adult, and you have dinners like this the older you get. And I'm an adult lady now. And we finish eating, and... We go out into the parking lot, and Shinobu's boyfriend is like getting kind of impatient. He's like, come on, come on, let's go. And I know that I should be asking where we're going. And I look at Shinobu, and she doesn't really say anything. She's suddenly like very quiet. We've been talking for such a long time, and now I get nothing out of her. And I know that I shouldn't get in that car, but when I look back at her, she looks so relaxed and she looks like she's in the right place and she's where she needs to be and it's almost like this current is pulling me into the car with her, into the back seat. 
and we take off again with the two men in the front and they're talking but I can't really hear what they're saying because the engine is so loud and we're driving fast again and we're driving down this street and it's like all of the other cars and all of the lights are being plucked one by one as we drive faster and faster and it feels like less and less of a city and I know we're getting further and further away from any chance I have of getting home soon. And I look at Shinobu and she's smiling and her teeth are glowing kind of red from all of the lights on this dashboard of this fancy car. And we're going faster and faster and the road is getting smaller and smaller and darker and darker and pretty soon it's only trees. There's no more lights, there's no more, there's no more city. I'm like, where are we? I have no idea where we are. It shouldn't be this dark, this close to Tokyo. And I'm thinking, this is the kind of car that my mother told me never get into. And this is the kind of place I shouldn't be. And Shinobu's smile is getting smaller and smaller and we turn onto a smaller road and it's only trees now. And then I hear gravel under the car and I can feel gravel in my stomach. And I'm like, this is it. I need to decide now which way to run. And the doors open and I smell cedar and I smell incense. And there are these little lights glimmering and I can just make out the walls of an old wooden building and a sweeping tile roofs, and I know exactly where we are. We are at a Buddhist temple. And then I know, I know what these men are. Their heads are shaved. These men are monks. <laughs> and I get out, and we walk into the temple, and Shinobu's boyfriend leads us in, and all of the lights are dark, there's just a few of these glimmering lights throughout the temple and it's like walking through a haunted house because as we walk into one room it's as if it appears and then when we walk out it disappears behind us and we walk into one room and there's this elderly couple sitting at a small table and they look so sad and they look so far away and there's food on the table but they haven't touched it and it's like looking through the window of a dining car and a model train. And Shinobu's boyfriend greets them and he says, hi mom, hi dad, I'm home. And they nod to him and they nod to the younger man, but they don't even look at me or Shinobu. It's like we're not there. And then all of us leave and that room disappears. And Shinobu's boyfriend takes us back behind the main hall and it's this storage room and there's these gold things in there that I don't understand what they are and there's drums and there's cushions and he pulls a drum off of the shelf and he starts beating it and he starts chanting and it's so beautiful, his voice is so majestic and it just fills the halls and it's like I'm somewhere else 
And then he stops suddenly, and he says, you see that? I do that in a ceremony, and I make $500. (laughs) And the younger man laughs, and Shinobu rolls her eyes, and I'm like, $500. (laughs) And then we leave that room, and that room disappears. And he brings us back into his apartment, and the carpet is red, and the furniture is this black fake leather, and the only thing for decoration inside this house is these tiny uh, bird figurines, and it's this mascot for a candy, kind of like a toucan Sam, and he has them all over, he collects them. They're really creepy with these beady little eyes. And we all sit down on the floor, and Shinobu's boyfriend tells me everything about his life and about this temple for two hours. And I find out that this temple, it's a family temple, so it gets passed down from father to son throughout many generations. So Shinobu's boyfriend was in line to inherit the temple because he was the only son but he didn't want to do that. He wanted to join a youth motorcycle game. <laughs> and so his parents uh, said, okay, we'll make a deal. If you don't join the game, and instead you get ordained and become a priest and take over the temple, we will buy you any car or motorcycle that you want. And he had so many that he was running a dealership on the side And he was supposed to get married, and he didn't. And that was a problem, because he didn't have a son to pass the temple to the next generation. So that's why the younger guy was there. That younger guy was the apprentice in lieu of a son. And the parents were very upset about this, because it meant that the lineage of the temple was going to be broken, wouldn't be in the family anymore. But the boyfriend didn't care. He had his cars, and he had his motorcycles, and he had an apprentice who he got to tell what to do. And he demonstrated this by making the apprentice give him a massage in front of us. And it's getting late, and it's well past midnight, and I know that the trains have just stopped running, and there's no way that I'm getting home that night. And I know I have to spend the night in that temple. And Shinobu gets up, and she draws a bath. And she says, you can take the first bath. It's really nice. And it sounded so normal. So I went into the bathroom, and I locked the door, and I sink into this deep bath. And it is nice, and the water's warm, but my muscles are refusing to relax. It's like they're fighting the water. And I can hear... Shinobu and the priest arguing outside the door. And I just hold as still as I can because I need to hear them. And if the water starts rippling, I won't be able to hear them. And the priest says, she's going to join us, right? And my body wants to react, but I can't because I have to stay still so I can hear what Shinobu says. And Shinobu says, no, no way. It's not happening. 
and I'm starting to tremble a little bit and I can see ripples in the water, but I can still hear them. And he says, but she's going to watch at least, right? And Shinobu's like, hell no. And it's the strongest I've ever heard her say anything. And then I hear a hand on the door and I panic. And then I hear a slap on the back of a bald head. And then I hear nothing. And I'm sitting in this water and I can hear like the movement of the water kind of echoing through the room and it's very calm and it's very peaceful and it's so the opposite of what's inside of me. But I wonder like how long can I stay in this bath until I have to go and deal with what's outside. And finally, I, I get up and I get dressed and I take a deep breath. I'm like, we're gonna face this. And I go outside and, and nothing happens. Shinobu and her boyfriend, they get up and they go into the bath and I sit on the sofa and the apprentice lies down in front of me on the floor and just falls asleep instantly and starts snoring. And Shinobu and her boyfriend come out of the bath and they go into the bedroom without looking at me, without saying anything. They close the door. And I'm alone now on the sofa and I know that I can't fall asleep. I have to stay awake because what if Shinobu falls asleep and that priest comes back? I need to be ready. So I'm sitting on the sofa. My eyes are fixed on the door. I can hear Shinobu and this priest having terrible sex. And I can hear the apprentice snoring. And then everything kind of goes quiet. And that's when it gets really hard to stay awake. And my eyes are adjusting to the darkness. And I can just now make out all these birds. And they seem tiny before, but they don't seem tiny anymore. They seem very sinister. And my eyes are moving from bird to bird to bird. And I start counting them. And I count them over and over and over again how many birds are in this room. There was 45. No, 145. And then I moved on to other things. I braided and I unbraided my hair. I went through song lyrics in my head. I keyed out piano songs that I had learned in elementary school and just keyed them out on the sofa. Just anything I could do to stay awake. And finally, light starts filtering through the, through the windows. And finally, this door that I kept going back to opens. And Shinobu's boyfriend walks out in full priest robes. And he puts his hands together and he looks at me. And he looks like a full page photo from a religions of the world textbook. And he looks so priestly, and he looks so good, and he looks nothing like what I saw the night before. And Shinobu comes out, and the apprentice wakes up, and we all go out into the parking lot. And the priest says he has to go do a ceremony, and he tells the apprentice to drive me and Shinobu back to the station. And just as we're getting into the car, the priest digs into his robes, and he pulls out a stack of cash and he hands it to Shinobu. And I had 
this rush of knowing too much information at once. And I looked at her and I'm like, is this what I think it is? And she doesn't look at me, she turns away. And we drive to the train station in silence and we get on the train and we sit next to each other but we're looking forward and we don't say anything. And Shinobu gets off first. And I say goodbye and she says goodbye but there's no crying and waving and there's no saying I'll see you another time and I can't wait to see you. There's nothing like that, it's just goodbye. And as soon as she's gone, all the sharpness inside of me just leaves. And the sun is kind of filtering through the windows of the train and flashing. And the sound of the train is so hypnotic and safe. And all of the people in the train, the white noise, everything feels so safe. And as soon as she's gone, I fall asleep. And I fall asleep, and I don't wake up until the train hits the end of the line. I miss my station. And I never saw her again. I didn't try to call her. I didn't try to write. And it's because I was so angry. And I didn't care that she was a sex worker. I was actually relieved that that priest, that horrible priest was not her real boyfriend, that she was not going to marry him. She was never going to join that horrible, sad temple family. I was angry because that priest specifically asked for me to come, which meant I was part of that job. And she never told me. And yeah, she protected me when he decided he wanted more than conversation. But that whole night, I was looking to her for answers. And she gave me nothing. She never told me what was happening. And even after I found out, she never told me what it was all about. And so I never reached out. And then years later, this postcard arrives at my parents' house from Shinobu. And it's a picture of her and a man and a little boy. And they all look so happy. And she's written in hand, Happy New Year, and then the name of the boy next to his picture. And that was it. And so I wrote back. I wrote her back a long letter telling her about my life and all of my contact information. And I never heard from her again. And I think the reason that she sent me that postcard was because she wanted me to know that she was okay. And I think the reason that she never wrote back to me was because she has a new life now. And I knew something about her about her past that probably very few people knew, maybe no one else knew. And because I knew that, I could never be part of the life she has now. Thank you.
Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I'd like to start this off by saying, sorry, Mom. <laughs> You'll find out why. My mother always told me that I have a tendency to look at everything like a puzzle, even people, and that gets me in trouble. This story takes place five years ago. It's November of about 2012, going on 2013. I'm at my engagement party. It's awkward, because engagement parties are awkward. (laughs) Usually, you've met their parents, she's met your parents, but the families don't know each other. And the engagement party also takes place around my fiance, Jane's, birthday. It's right near the end of November. At some point, in between all of the people talking and the things going kind of weird and my sister's not really getting along with everybody else in the family, my fiance Jane has a little mini meltdown just because she's so anxious about what's going on and she's worried that everyone isn't really getting along and I'm telling her, no, sweetie, everybody's getting along, it's fine. Also remember, this is the first time a lot of these people are meeting each other. Don't worry about it, it's gonna be okay. She had bipolar disorder, so we tended to, like, sometimes things would go up and down, and she had this way of looking at me that was so intense, it made me feel like I was the only person that ever existed, and I could do anything. So, us being engaged was kind of just the next logical step to us knowing each other. We had known each other, I was 24, she was 23, I had known her since I was about 21, and we had been fast friends she was very sexual. Not, all right, hold on, not like that. She just knew what she wanted, and that was, for me, I was like, oh, great, I don't have to jump through hurdles, yay. So, the engagement goes well. She asked me what I think. I was like, it went well, the party went well. It's, this happened on a Saturday. Following day is a Sunday. She had, like, these big eyes, and my nickname for her was Goldie. Like, she just look into your soul. Her mother was very overbearing. And I mean overbearing in the way that, like, her father was afraid to get into an argument with her overbearing. So it's the following day, and she calls me at, like, 12, and she's like, hey, what are you doing? Da-da-da. Nothing. Woop-de-woop. So <laughs> a couple of hours later, she calls me. She's like, I'm stressed out. My mom is stressing me out. She keeps asking me all these questions on the engagement, and I'm like, all right, tell your mom to calm down. We're not actually getting married, at least until like a year and a half from now. You don't have to think about all this stuff right now. Like, it's, tell her to calm down. It's your wedding. It's okay. So around 9.30 that night, I get a call from her dad telling me that Jane's in the hospital because she just tried to kill herself tried to swallow like a whole bottle of pills. And they tell me to come down the following day because she's just in the hospital right now. The following day comes and I go to the hospital. This takes place in Delaware. I end up spending a week by her bedside while I'm in the middle of grad school and I'm also being the point of contact for all of her family members and her parents whenever they can come in. Because, oh, by the way, her dad had to go get surgery to have his arm removed because he had a tumor in it. So 
it's a lot going on. I want to say about like towards the end of the week, she actually wakes up and she looks at me and she says, hey, are we still getting married? And I go, sweetie, you just had a suicide attempt. Like, I don't, let's just focus on you getting out of the hospital right now. And I promise you, we'll talk about this. This is December. A week goes by. She wakes up, gets up, and she leaves the hospital. And we're out of the hospital. Now we're like kind of moving on. That was a red flag. We'd been friends, so I'd heard stories about things that she did before then. Like, she was amazing. I was enthralled by her because she taught herself how to play like four different instruments. She was a ballet dancer. She taught me stuff about hacking. She had a crazy set of skills, and she was very intelligent. So us being engaged, I was like, okay, I'm sitting here watching my fiance fight to like live, and I'm like 24 years old. And I'm just like, okay, can you deal with this for the rest of your life? There was some doubt. So she gets out of the hospital, and she didn't like this story that she told me. She wished she had never told me a woman when we were younger. While she lived in Tennessee, she told me, if you ever want me to do anything for you, just get me drunk and I'll do it. This isn't what this story is about. <laughs> I know lines. You don't cross someone. She had mentioned to me a long time ago, she got drunk one time, had sex with a guy, and somewhere along the way, she stuck a dildo in his ass because he wanted her to. She hated that I remembered that story because it made me laugh. <laughs> Not because I thought it was comical, just because I thought, you told me and you're mad that I remembered it? What? <laughs> of course I remember it. <laughs> At some point in around mid-January, we sit down and she asks me again, hey, are we getting married? And I'm like, yes. I never said I didn't want to marry you, but we have to focus on you right now. We have to focus on like getting you better, at least to a point where everyone, including you, feels like this is a healthy thing to do. Because if we just move forward like nothing happened, that would be insane. So February comes, she takes me to a concert in Baltimore. Mind you, I still live in Delaware. And things go smooth. And right around the end of February, she says, hey, can you help me lose weight? Like, I need, I need your help. Because I don't like certain things about like myself. I don't like my eating habits. And your discipline, you could help me. And despite the fact that I don't feel like I have any expertise on it, I say, sure, I'll help you. Just tell me what you want me to do. March rolls around. And we go for a run around the neighborhood. It's like a basic suburban neighborhood. We do it for like an hour, and we get back in the house. We're both sweating, exhausted, and she's like, I'm hungry. And I said, okay, cool, what do you want to eat? She's like, I don't know what I want to eat. I just know I'm going to eat something. She had this terrible, god-awful treat that she liked to eat. It was nachos, but it was seafood nachos. I love nachos. I was just in the back of the room eating nachos. 
she liked seafood nachos, but no, 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 no. It was nachos with imitation crab meat, vegan cheese. I don't know if y'all notice about certain kinds of cheeses that you buy from the grocery mart. They don't melt, they just get hard if you warm them up. And it was with mango pineapple salsa that was more sweet than saucy. It was disgusting. I hated it. So she's whipping this together, going all around the kitchen. And I'm like, what are you doing? I'm going to get you something to eat. We are across the street from a place that you like to eat at. Calm down. And she's like, no, I'm eating this. Leave me alone. And I'm like, I'm not even, how am I bothering you? You just told me you were hungry and you're asking me to help you. This thing you're making is not a good thing to eat. And she whips it up. I'm sitting at the table to my right, but kind of diagonal. I go, all right, listen, sweetie. You got to give me the plate. I was like, we can't eat this. Come on, stop playing. I reach over to take the plate. And she stabs me. Because for whatever reason, she decided to get a fork and a steak knife. And she stabbed me with the fork in my left wrist. And so I jump up like anybody would. I look down at my hand and I look at her and I say, you stabbed me. And I go to reach my right arm and she stabbed me with the steak knife on this arm. And so now this arm is bleeding and this arm is bleeding and I'm still confused because never in a million years did I think that someone who I was engaged to be married to, who I had spent a week by your bed after your suicide attempt, would ever stab me. And so I back away and I like move a chair in between the two of us to give us some space. And she stabs me in my right leg. And now I'm angry. But then I realize there's no one else in the kitchen right now. It's just me and her. So if someone walks in, for all they know, I hit her. So I'm in a bad spot. And so a light bulb goes off. And I say, oh, I need a witness. And so I slide by her. And I go look in the living room to see who's there. And who's there? Her dad. But he's asleep on the couch because he only has one arm and he's tired. And I realize I can't leave because she's crazy and she stabbed me. And I have to de-escalate this situation. So I walk back in the kitchen and we just kind of stare at each other for a little while. And all of a sudden, as if a light bulb goes off in her head, she snaps out of it. And she gets me a napkin and says, oh my God, you're bleeding. And I say, yeah, bitch, you stabbed me. (laughs) And I remember saying you stabbed me at least eight other times. And then I say, I'm gonna leave now. And I go out to my car and I get in, and I sit down, and I start screaming, because I don't know what else to do. And then I start laughing, because that's how I respond when I don't know what else to do also. All these thoughts are raising through my mind because this is the woman that I love. I've 
a month before and I was like, okay, yeah, how many kids are we going to have? I guess I'm going to stay in Delaware. Maybe we'll move somewhere else. How are we going to do this when we go on vacations? In my mind, prior to that, we had a life that we were going to have together. And then she stabbed me. And now I don't know what to do. Because I'm bleeding. And it's bad. But it's not bad enough that I think I need to get stitches. Not because I shouldn't go to the hospital, but because I also think I'm going to have to explain this to everyone. And I'm going to have to explain this to my mom. And I said, sorry, mom, because there exists a picture of everyone in my family holding a gun. And I'm deeply worried that if I tell my mom that this happens, she might shoot my fiance. She might feel justified on it because she stabbed me, but I don't know. So I don't go to the hospital. I go home. And I don't break up with my girlfriend immediately because remember, she's crazy and she stabbed me. The next couple weeks go by like a blur. At some point she says, you know, I'm not happy with the way you're leading our relationship. I think we should go to couples therapy. We have problems. And I say, oh really? Sure, let's go to couples therapy. And we get to couples therapy. And that's a blur as well because at some point she mentions that she's not happy with the things that I'm doing. She wants me to lead things in a more spiritual, religious way. I'm not a religious man. I remember being a child at the age of six and watching people in church jump up and down and fall on the ground and think of my mom and go, what's wrong with her? It just never hit for me. Sorry. So... She wanted that, I didn't want to provide it, and she told the therapist she didn't like the way I was leading the relationship. Little did she know, it was leading exactly where I wanted it to, which was the end. <laughs> More time goes by, and at some point she, we get into an argument, and I say, hey listen, I understand you have these problems, and you've mentioned them to me, and I'm gonna work on them. I wasn't gonna work on them. <laughs> and I say, but I need you to stop bringing this up, because I am annoyed, and if you bring this up to me one more time, we're done. She did one more time, and I called on FaceTime, said, hey, listen, we're done. I needed an out. After that, like, I had gone to school for behavioral science. I thought we could, between myself and her parents and her therapist, we could all provide a safety net for her. I was wrong. I was an arrogant 23-year-old to think that I could help someone in that way. She had a lot of things going on, and it wasn't really working. And I'd never been to therapy prior to that, but I knew if someone stabs you and you were in a relationship with them, you should go get help. And I did. At some point, I remember sitting in therapy, my therapist saying to me, Stefan, you can't look at people's like puzzles. Your mother was right. Ever since that day, I've kind of looked at it as though I died that day. The idea of who I was or who I was going to be and the life that I was going to live died in that kitchen. And who I am now is just what I've become after that realization. Because I did figure out her puzzle. I solved it. It was in her eyes. What I thought was this intense, loving look was just the look of someone who was in a lot of pain 
and they were looking to be validated and to feel loved. And it was also the look of madness. But even after all that happened, I still love nachos. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Khalid behind me now. And you just heard from Stefan Michael. He is a Baltimore-based comedian. You can find him on Instagram at Stefan underscore Michael. Before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. A little audio whirlpool of Buddhist chanting going on there. Now, remember, these days you can get practically everything you want on demand like this podcast. You can listen wherever you want when it's convenient for you. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages? You can get your postage on demand with Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your own desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, using your own computer and printer. Then the mail carrier picks it up. Just click, print, mail, you're done. It couldn't be easier. We've been using Stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio for about seven or eight years now and we have always loved it i just did a ton of mailing you know sending out letters to people encouraging them to vote for the midterms and so it was so convenient to be able to just print 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 all those stamps nothing to worry about no trips to make And right now, you can use Risk for this special offer. It includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, 
and a four-week trial. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter risk. Our final story on this week's episode is a real rarity on the show. We have had dozens and dozens of dominatrixes, dominant women in the kink community, share their stories on the show before. And some of those stories have been about very rough play. But almost never has a dominant heterosexual male dared to share about their experiences around all that. And so that is where we are going to go now. Rod Hood shared this story with us at our last Vancouver live show. Here he is now. It's Rod Hood with a story we call How About Now? Hello. Some of you may not like me very much when I'm done with my talk, um, because I've done some things in my past, like burn a woman with a lit cigarette. I've cut a woman with a knife. I've kept a woman locked in my pitch dark basement for two days. And I fucked a woman with an octopus. Now, that last one, I'm going to clarify a little bit, that was for a photo shoot. And like everything I do, it was by consent and by request, actually. All the things I listed were all by request. And technically, I didn't really fuck her with the octopus. I kind of helped with placement, and the photos were beautiful and amazing, and the octopus was dead. So what I really do is play in the very deep end of our local kink community pool and have done so for many, many years and in that time have developed a reputation as kind of a go-to guy for more some of the more out-there things, like getting fucked by an octopus for a, a photo shoot. But I, I not only have a reputation as a hard player and somebody who will do some of the more extreme things, but the other thing that I, I've cultivated uh, over the years is a reputation as a gentleman dominant. And it's true, I do teach a course on how you can be a dominant and still be a gentleman, even when you're doing some very, very ungentlemanly-like things, which I love to do. Because at the bottom line, I'm a sadist. I'm a sexual sadist. I derive pleasure from fucking with people's bodies and fucking with their heads by consent after careful negotiation. So it came as no surprise to me one day when I was out for a coffee date. I'd been chatting with a woman on Fat Life, the Facebook for kinky people, and we'd set up a date to discuss um, having, having some play. And we're not more than five minutes into the coffee date when she stops and says, you know, my friend really needs to meet you. And I'm like, really, your friend, why is that? And she said, I'm not going to tell you why she really needs to meet you, but she really needs to meet you. Can I give her your email? And clearly this coffee date's not going very well, and, and I'm a risk taker and, and love to get out and, and try new things. So I'm like, sure, she can have my email. So about the coffee date ended and, of course, went nowhere. And uh, about four or five days later, sure enough, I, I get an email from a young woman who I will call Sam. 
And Sam wrote a generalized email saying, you know, dear Rod, my friend has given you my email and I'm interested in exploring some kinky play. Could we chat about that? And I responded saying, sure. Um, and I also wrote back specifically saying, your friend said you really need to meet me. You know, why is that? And, and she wrote back saying, it's very personal and I prefer to discuss it in person. Would you be open to that? And of course, I wrote back saying, great, let's meet somewhere for coffee. And Sam wrote back saying, I don't want to meet for coffee. This is far too personal. I, I need to meet face-to-face -face somewhere private. Can I just come to your house? And you no know, red flag for me, this is a little bit unusual. This is not traditionally safe kinky play to arrange to meet an older kinky dominant man at his home the first time you meet them. It's just not smart. But I was very, very intrigued about what she wanted to discuss. So I said, okay, you can you know, come and meet me at my home and we arranged to meet for tea and on the afternoon of the tea the knock came at the door and I opened the front door and I looked up into Sam's eyes who stood a good couple of inches over me which is a little bit disconcerting because it's kind of hard to feel dominant and all-powerful when you're looking up at someone and even if you're on tippy toes you're not very stable but remembered that if people are kneeling or tied on the floor that you are taller than them so I invited Sam in and we made small talk for about two minutes and by now I am just bursting with curiosity and I'm like all right I'm just gonna point blank what the fuck do you need to see me about why did your friend tell me say that you needed to meet me specifically and she got a little bit quiet and, and looked down and then she kind of looked up and she said that she wanted to be punched in the face while being fucked and she said I want to be punched in the face while being fucked and fucked roughly I'm like I'm not gonna lie that's kind of for a status that's kind of hot I'm like okay this is intriguing and, and she was an, you know attractive and nice and seemed intelligent but I felt that you know we should probably dive into this a little bit deeper because wanting to get punched in the face while fucking is a little bit hardcore and what am I, you know, getting her into? What am I getting me into? So, you know, I asked, you know, wh why do you think you need to, to do this? And Sam said that, Sam said, you know, I was um, in a very abusive marriage um, for uh, a number of years and have been out of it for about uh, six months. And during the time that I was in that marriage, um, I, I was subjected to, you know, spousal rape and he beat me during sex. And Sam said that she had, she said, you know, I I'd always had an interest in kink and my ex-husband, you know, destroyed that. And Mike, she went on to say, you know, I feel that if I, I do this and consent to it, somehow I will be taking ownership of kink again. And by consenting to it, I can somehow feel good about it. And so we chatted for a while longer because this is, you know, kind of risky from a number of perspectives, from, from mine, per, you know, personally, I'm not going to lie, I don't want to go to jail, I just want to have fun, and I don't want to fuck anybody up. So we chatted for a while, and I felt that she was, you know, reasonably uh, reasonable and intelligent and was in charge of her emotions, and um, that, she, you know, we clearly clicked and got along, and I agreed that we would set up the play date. So sometime later, um, when she had a day off following... Um, and that was another thing that kind of triggered me that she was taking good care of herself because she wanted to make sure that she had a day off the following day in case she needed any recovery time. So I'm like, okay, this is good. I, I think we can do this. We set up the play date. The, 
you know, the day of the play date arrives, the door opens, and I am at, you know, Dom's anxious point number one, because when you're, you know, agreeing to do something, and I have just agreed to fuck a total stranger and punch her in the face, there's no real script, and there's no script for starting that, like, I've done other things where, you know, you're going to do a, a schoolgirl, a, a woman wants to, to be assaulted at the door, selling cookies, part of her fantasy. You know what to do, right? Door opens, grab girl by hair, slam door, have way with her. It's all kind of scripted out. If Sam and I were going to the movies, you've got a, a social script, right? This isn't normal social discourse. You go to the movies. You know you're going to buy tickets. You're going to go to the concession. You're going to sit down. You're going to watch a movie. Maybe you'll have a kiss goodnight, maybe you'll go for a snack, but our roles are defined, and when you're doing what I've just agreed to do, we don't have a role, and Sam and I hadn't, we discussed lots, and, and of course we had consent, and we had discussed the fact that she might get a black eye, and she was good with that, and I'm like, that's even hotter for me, but again, do you have a good cover story, and, and she had no concerns about work or anything, so, you know, that level of play was a go. Um, Anyway, so, so we're standing at the door, and I've got that level of anxiety running through my head. I, you know, do I invite her in for tea? Do we start? And I just said, you know what? I think we should just go up to my bedroom. And Sam, I remember Sam smiled and nodded and said, thank you. So lead her up to the bedroom, and uh, I let her go into the bedroom first. And, you know, she wanted something pretty rough and, and taken. So the bedroom door closes, and it's game on time. So I remember pretty much grabbing her by the hair and throwing her down on the bed, and, you know, she wanted rough, so there was lots of rough housing and slaps, and I remember getting her shirt off, and then getting her bra off, and then um, getting her pants off, and still while trying to hold her, because, you know, it's part of this whole consensual non-consent scene, and I kind of kick her pants off and down with one foot while maintaining control, and and now Sam is, is naked, and... You know, I, I'm not going to lie throughout this, you know, from the door on, you're, as a dominant, uh, you're always kind of anxious, you know, are things going well? Have I crossed any lines? So, of course, as, as part of the whole scene, I just reach down and grab her in the crotch. And, you know, two reasons. Uh, number one, it's an assault scene, so you want to do something assaulty for the realism. And number two, I want to make sure we're having a good time. And, you know, Sam was clearly having a very good time. She was highly aroused. So that's a green light, right? Um, Things are going well. You feel you're doing a good job as the top. So we carry on, and, and I start to get myself undressed, and I, I eventually I am naked, and now we're at anxiety point number two. You know, given the other anxiety of a new play date, is you're doing a consensual non-consent rough play scene. Anybody ever try and smoothly roll on a condom with one hand while holding down a struggling partner without breaking the scene? Because you don't want to say, oh, stop, I'm just going to sit up, roll that on, roll back in, because you're creating a whole, you know, the kink is theatrics, right? You're creating that theatric and that emotion. So I hold her down by the hair, and I've got one knee on her hip, and I managed to roll that thing on. And I remember I threw... Sam on her back and looked at her and clearly it was green light time and so just dove in you know no preparation no warning just slammed right in and Sam gasped but then she wrapped herself around me and even though I was being rough she was right in there arms around me knees up around me and and the fucking is good and and I look at her and she's even though I've been rough she's smiling and I'm like okay green light this is good and I let that go on for a couple of minutes, and then I'm like, okay, it's, let's check out this punch thing. And again, you know, anxiety point number three or four or whatever I'm at, how is this going to go? Because, you know, she's a relative stranger, 
She's pretty clear on what she wanted, but I'm about to punch somebody in the face during sex, and I don't want this to go sideways for either of us, right? Like, I, I'm not getting let out like this. And I, I like to think that I'm a pretty good judge of who I'm playing with because I've been doing pretty extreme stuff for more than 10 years and have yet to be arrested or, or have anything like that happen. Um, anyway, so she's down there and we're fucking, and I kind of just give her a, a light chap on the cheek. And, and I hit her hard, but not hard enough to do any damage, mostly enough to shock her and see how it goes. And I look down and I get a big smile and a nod, right? And I'm like, okay, this is going good. We can hit again. And I'm not going to lie, the fucking's getting better because I'm getting aroused because I'm getting to do something fairly extreme. So I hit her again. And that's a green light. So then I punch her really hard up by the eye because that's what she really wanted. And that went well. And then I honestly don't remember how many punches there were, but shortly after that, everything just changed. It was just like we went from passionate and there and involved to distant. Sam's gone from the room. You get that feeling on a bad coffee date, right? All of a sudden, the person is gone. And um, I looked at her, and, and I remember her saying specifically, I need you to get off right now. I need this to stop. So immediately, of course, I roll over to my side of the bed, and I tuck my knees up to my chest. And, and at that point, honestly, I am hiding my erection because something's gone really bad, and she doesn't need to be staring at that. So I give it a couple of moments, and I, and I ask her, you know, Sam, what's going on? And she looks at me, and she looks down, and then she starts to apologize, and she goes, I'm, 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 I'm so sorry, but I think I need to leave. I, I don't think I can do this. And I'm like, that's, that's not a problem. Like, you don't need to be sorry. If it's not working, you can go home. Like, no questions asked. So I immediately reach down, and, and my clothes are in a neat pile by the bed. I put them on and then look around the room for Sam's clothes, which, of course, are tossed everywhere. And Sam gets dressed, and I walk her to the front door, and, and she starts to apologize. No, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, Sam, no, you don't be sorry that this didn't work. It's, it's just fine. And we get down to the door, and she starts to apologize again, and she says, I'm so sorry you didn't even get to finish. And I remember saying, stop. You don't need to be sorry you don't need to finish it. I got to meet you. I got to punch you in the face. The fucking was really good. So I didn't have an orgasm. You know, I'm a grown-up man. Um, when you go home, if I feel the need, I can take care of myself. Like, go with my blessing. And she still looked really sad and uncomfortable, and she was looking down at the floor. And then, you know, my, my, I have a twisted sense of humor, and that switch goes off, and I think, what the fuck? And I look, looked at her, and I remember saying... I'm sorry, baby. I won't do it again. It's just that you make me so mad sometimes. <laughs> and then I'm looking at Sam, and then my brain is going, oh, fuck. You know, you've gone all the way through the date, and you've now ruined it. You've crossed the line. And then, but she burst out laughing, absolutely burst out laughing. And then I asked her for a hug, and she gave me a great big hug. And I remember we were hugging, and then a penny dropped for me. And I remember I pushed her back a little bit, and I looked you know, up at her, and I remember saying, I don't think you needed to consent to being punched in the face while fucking. I think you needed to be punched in the face while fucking and say stop and have somebody listen for once. And she looked at me, and, and I remember she said, oh my God, you're right. And we had another hug, and I wished her well, and, and she went off into the afternoon, and... You know, the next day I, I follow up with an email, you know, thanking her for coming over, telling her everything's okay. I remember saying, you know, so glad to have met you. 
And then several days went by before I heard from her, but I did eventually hear from her at the, at the end of the week. And she wrote a very short email, but I remember her specifically saying, thank you so much for the experience. I, I found it cathartic and that she really appreciated um, how I handled myself and, and what happened um, at the end of the meeting or the end of the, the play date. And I never did hear from her again, but I, I'm not going to lie, you know, for somebody with my bent in, in sadism to, to get away with playing at that level, but also knowing that on the, you know, outgoing end, somebody derived a great deal of pleasure and growth out of, out of the experience is, is truly rewarding. Thank you so much. Chasing down a wildfire Are you trying to make a cold liar out of me? You want to get high You overcome those desires before you come to me I think your mama's kind of sad And your papa's kind of mean I can take that all away You can stop playing it out on me 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 That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Laura Marling behind me now, and we just heard from Rod Hood. Uh, you know, there are some people, it's a small percentage, but there are some people uh, whose kinky exploits are connected back to trauma in their lives. And uh, that, of course, is risky in its own way. It's psychologically, a Pandora's box there. You know, as always, we here at the show don't necessarily endorse or promote any of the choices or decisions or opinions that are are shared about. But that would not be the first time that I've heard a story a lot like that one, where the experience was actually seemingly somewhat cathartic for the participants. Remember, we have very vibrant and vital conversations that happen about risk stories. Uh, There's one that's happening all the time on Facebook. It's called the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. And there's also a Reddit or subreddit. I don't know if I'm using the right language. Anyway, that's at Risk Podcast on Reddit. And if you're ever feeling like reaching out to us very directly, questions, suggestions, thoughts, I'm at Kevin at risk-show.com. Especially if you're a multimillionaire and you're feeling so philanthropic that, you know, Patreon won't do. You just want to give us a ton of money or nominate us for a MacArthur Genius Grant or buy me a trip to Hong Kong. Speaking of buying, have you bought the Risk book? Have you bought a bunch of copies for all your friends and family for Christmas? 
Holy cow, you gotta get the risk book, my friends. You gotta get more than one. You can't just have one for crying out loud. The risk book is available in audiobook and ebook and paperback. It's wherever books are sold, or you can go to theriskbook.com. And it really is such a treat. Be sure to get it. And when you get it, be sure to leave us a review on Amazon. Be sure to spread the word to everyone you know to buy that risk book. It is. Everything that Risk is only in book form, and everyone who has bought it loves the damn thing. And if you want to see Risk live, information about where we're appearing next is always at risk-show.com slash tour. Don't forget to look up all the education that we provide around storytelling at the Story Studio. Dot org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Me, me. Huh? <gasps>